Hey, it's Melissa Rivers, and welcome to Group Text. Stay tuned for a new episode. Welcome back to Group Text. Today, I, of course, got Sabrina with me. I, again, have Larry Amoros with me, who I love and adore And any time we can spend together. I love the fact that we're doing a podcast and Larry waves. It's okay. Because that's super helpful it's when okay. we're doing an audio. <laughs> you know what it is? For me, the three of us together is like Manny, Moe, and Jack. <laughs> the Pet <best> Boys. <laughs> But I love that. Whenever I interview Larry, he waves. I'm like, that's super helpful. No, but I'm so used to Zooming. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> Forgetting it's a podcast. Exactly. And we're super excited. Joining us, Sarah Weinman, author, writer, and the editor of a new book coming out on July 28th, Unspeakable Acts, True Tales of Crime, Murder, Deceit, and Obsession. Yes, it had to have all four in there. Thank you so much for having me. We have been doing all these amazing interviews about true crime because it's a booming business now. But Larry and Sabrina and I, as well as my mom, have been true crime addicts before it was cool. So we are having the best time talking to all of you that are so deeply entrenched in the genre. So you don't just love true crime. You seem to love all crime, including mysteries, fiction, nonfiction. I mean, I guess the main question is, what went wrong in your childhood that this is your (laughs) obsession? (laughs) So my experience spending a disproportionate amount of time with crime writers, be they fiction writers or nonfiction writers, is that they tend to be the most well-adjusted people I have ever met in my life. Really? It's something about taking those questions that you have about how people can do the most horrible things and putting it on the page that it's almost like it leeches it out of your personality and what's left is like perfectly amiable people who you know in the before time like to get together at conferences and socialize and hang out and talk about what we were working on and yes what we were working on happened to be the most gruesome subjects imaginable but the people themselves tend to be really cool and really affable and aren't necessarily stabbing each other in the back figuratively as opposed to literally. How did this all start for you? I feel like I've been interested in crime pretty much from childhood. A story that I keep coming back to is that when I was about eight or nine, and this was in the mid eighties at a time when I was weirdly still into watching baseball in my native Canada you have baseball in Canada? No, sorry. Yes, you do. Well, we lost one of our teams. It was yeah. the Montreal Expos and they became the Washington Nationals. And I'm still a little bitter about that. Okay, good to know. <laughs> so as a kid, I was a big reader from a very early age. And one of the things that a little bit later on, when I was about seven, eight, nine, as I would be obsessed with this book called The Baseball Encyclopedia. And one of the things that just really interested me was how did all these baseball players die? And so I researched, I suppose, or just read up on it. And I've decided to regale my parents with all sorts of facts that I learned. And they thought it was the strangest, but also the funniest thing ever. And that's sort of the 
less serious response. The more serious response is that also being a teenager in the early 90s in Canada at a time when young women and girls were going missing and it was all in the news and a couple named Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka were determined to have been the culprits in several of these cases. And because those girls and young women were very close to my age, it just really struck home in a very personal and deep way. And so as I moved through life, I went through various stages before I became a writer. I got a master's degree in forensic science. I worked in a bookstore and then somehow landed into writing about crime, first fiction and then later nonfiction and doing journalism and the like. So I've been steeped in this for a long time. I don't expect that to change. I mean, you're very much an academic. You also have a degree in criminal justice from John Jay College. That's the forensic science degree, yeah. Why didn't you become a lawyer? Gosh, it never occurred to me to become a lawyer. I think because my eldest sibling got a law degree and he ended up becoming a professional writer. So it just seemed like this was not an avenue that I ever thought that I personally wanted to pursue. But I also felt that forensic science, what I really loved about the field was not what the field actually was. And by that, I mean, most of the people that I was in grad school with became lab, not technicians, but scientists and doing analysis day after day after day. And I just wasn't as good as that. I was much more interested in the bigger picture in cases, in people, in what happened and mysteries that had been solved, but also mysteries that lingered. And so it turned out that was a much more natural fit for journalism and for writing. So I feel like a lot of people assumed I would become a writer long before I ever really did, which is not unusual. Question. As someone who loves this, I read all this and my friends Elias will say, well, isn't it gory and disgusting? And that's not what interests me at all. I have no interest in pictures or gore or blood. It becomes like a puzzle you're putting together or writing about the puzzle and seeing the pieces. How did this happen? Who was the victim? And it's all of that that attracts me. It's like a chess match. Does that, does that make sense? Uh, yeah, I can see. I wouldn't personally use that analogy for me, but I can totally see why almost like an intellectual exercise can appeal to people or feeling like they want to be a little bit a step ahead. And it's a little bit of head, but I do think that one of the reasons that true crime has become even more popular in the last few years is this element of participation, that people aren't just consuming true crime or watching it or reading it, but they're actively participating in message boards, on Twitter threads and Facebook groups, and being part of communities that can help figure out, well, what happened to these people who were killed and no one knows who did it? Or why are serial killers the way that they are? Or what's going on in this larger picture with criminal justice issues, wrongful convictions and the like? So people really get invested and like anything, there are really great things about that because it can bring greater awareness and attention. But there is also a danger that people who are just logging into message boards aren't necessarily as cognizant of how to do journalism and how to be sensitive and empathetic with sources and how to tread really carefully, especially when it is an open police investigation. Wow. Well, you've written both fiction and nonfiction. Which is more difficult? 
the older I get, the more I would say fiction. Really? Yeah. I find it harder to make stuff up. I mean, reality is so staggering in the stories that it offers that I just feel like I'm kind of surfing a wave and trying to get a little bit ahead of it. With fiction, when I'm left to my own imaginative devices, I don't think it's an accident that at least most of the published short stories that I've done really end up taking some real life incident as a kernel and then going from there. So I think I'm going to be in the nonfiction writing space for the foreseeable future, but I certainly don't want to rule out ever writing a novel either. Your book, uh, The Real Alita Lost Girl, An Unthinkable Crime and a Scandalous Masterpiece. Major awards. Lots of accolades. What, what was so compelling about that particular story? I think it was the fact that here is this controversial novel that people think they know, Lolita, which was published in first 1955, but it really became a big bestseller in 1958. And people read it then and they still read it now as if it's some kind of twisted love story. And certainly the two films that have been based on it really perpetuated that. But when I started to dig deeper and I learned the story of 11-year-old Sally Horner, who had been kidnapped by this pedophile in 1948 in Camden, New Jersey, and the fact that her name is in Lolita, and yet nobody really thought to figure out who she was, what her life was like before and after, and what the author of Lolita, Vladimir Nabokov, knew and when he knew it. So writing that book was both a way to bring Sally Horner's story to greater light and to have that story be in permanent conversation with this novel that, again, we think we know, but maybe we don't know it so well. I mean, that's a very academic way of presenting a true crime story. The best description of my book that someone ever gave me was it reads like a thriller, but it has the heft of a dissertation. (laughs) And that certainly, (laughs) it wasn't my intention. It's actually like, it's not a long book at all. It's maybe 65,000 words, which I guess translates to about 250 pages. Mm -hmm. It's just that I'm so steeped in crime narratives, fiction or non, that pacing is really important and characters are really important and setting and plot and suspense. And those all figured into how I wanted to put The Real Alita together as a book. But it was also really important to get at where Nabokov, the author, was at any given point in Sally Horner's life. Like if she had been kidnapped, where was he and how was he working on the book? What was the publication like? What was the afterlife, especially the cultural afterlife like? So there were just a lot of things that I needed to pack into this one tiny book. And it's been about two years, and at least based on how people have responded, it seemed as if I succeeded. But of course, with all books, there's always material that you hoped you would get that you never get. Which story has kept you up at night? Oh, gosh, there are so many. I think the one that I think about again, coming back to my native Canada, there was a young girl named Christine Jessup who was murdered in 1984. And a man was her neighbor. First, he was acquitted. And in Canada, the legal system works a little differently. So eventually, there was a chance for a retrial, and he was convicted. And DNA evidence more or less exonerated him in the mid-90s. So his conviction was overturned, and no one has come back to that case ever since. And I don't really understand why. And I think about 
the mistakes that police made, I think about Christine. And I think about how she was a little bit older than me, I think, at the time. So again, it comes back to identification from an age and geographic standpoint, but also just from a, this case seems solvable. Why isn't anyone doing anything? If you could pick one case that you wish you had had the chance to work on, what would it have been? It's always tricky to answer and limit myself to just one. Okay, give us your top two. (laughs) Well, I mean, what I can say is one of the pieces that I hope to be making some headway in eventually has to do with the technically solved but still under question a teenage girl named Barbara Kralik had been murdered in 1963. And that case has a very unusual connection to the Kitty Genovese case. Really? And so trying to figure that out has been a little more complicated than I would like, but it's something I definitely want to get back to and soon. When you say this similarity, I'm from New York, and I remember when the Kitty Genovese case happened. And if the, if the people who aren't familiar, she was on her way home from work and got off the subway to go home. And there were witnesses. They heard her getting stabbed and killed. Yeah. And no one called the police. Nobody called the police. I mean, that's why the case is famous, is the idea that everyone assumed someone else was calling, and here she was screaming, 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 and nobody called the police. Right. What is the parallel to the case you're talking about? What's the connection? So in this instance, a friend of hers, a little bit older, she was 15, and this guy, Alvin Mitchell, was about 18. He was arrested, and he was getting ready to be tried. And then the Genovese case happened, and Winston Mosley, who readily confessed and is definitely known to, you know, there's no argument that he killed Kitty, Mm -hmm. but in an interrogation, he also confessed to the murder of Annie Mae Johnson, as well as the murder of Barbara Kralik. So it meant they had two killers, two confessions, but only one was the killer. And so how that unfolded is pretty bizarre. And unsatisfactory, I think, is a good way to say it. How had it unfolded that makes you feel like it's unsatisfactory? So at Alvin Mitchell's first trial, his defense lawyer called Mosley to the stand, and Mosley again confessed to the murder of Barbara Kralik. So Mitchell was not convicted, but he wasn't found not guilty. It was a hung jury. And so the prosecutors decided, well, we're going to still try again, but we have to wait and really do a thorough investigation as possible. So a little less than a year passed, but finally Mitchell goes to trial and the prosecution believes that they have a stronger case. Mosley is called again and he completely recants. Really? On the stand. So Mitchell is convicted and he serves, I think, about 10 or 12 years. And he's been heard from since, but not really. And I think there's still a question as to who really did it. Hmm. You are very supportive of other women true crime writers. Is it a man's game or a woman's game? Because probably the most famous is Anne Rule. Do you think it's a women's game or a man's game? I feel like it's both. But what's been interesting to me, especially in the last few years, post what I call the serial true crime boom, like the podcast serial really opened things up, is that for my money, the most exciting and informative and comprehensive and well-written pieces, books, documentaries, and television shows are done by women. 
And so really when I was putting this anthology together, it was like, well, who is writing my favorite true crime pieces? And they turned out predominantly to be women. So it wasn't that difficult to put that together. Can I jump in for a sec? No. Thanks. <laughs> of course. You know, Anne Rule was my, my go-to to, until she died a couple of years ago. And I also, I read Vincent Bugliosi and, the, and I can't remember, it was Jay Phillips something who I'm, I read a lot of now. There's a difference in the tone and the perception where Anne Rule's stories, for example, there was much more humanity. I heard her interviewed once and she said that she was attracted to stories about someone who had it all and threw it away. And it was usually men who had the money, had the, and they, they tossed it all away. And there's a very human side to what she writes, whereas the male writing seems more technical, more an observer than an emotional participant. Right. Well, you know what? I could definitely see that because as I'm listening to Sarah and then the other male true crime writers that we've interviewed, there's a connection. It's almost like Sarah becomes the voice of these, you know, women mm -hmm. and these victims. There's such a level of compassion. And I mean, I just, you're like that person, like, I have to make sure that this voice is heard, that this life was counted. I just get such a different compassion speaking with you. Not to say they didn't have it, but maybe that is the difference between men and women, what Larry is saying. Well, also, as you guys say that, to add on to this never-ending question for you, <laughs> I've now got a third layer. And now that I think about it, most true crime books are written about women. Yes, because it's much more marketable when you can write about women victims who fit what has been commonly called the dead girl trope. Explain what the dead girl trope is, please. When we think of victims of true crime, they tend to be white, they tend to be, let's say, fair-haired, they tend to be beautiful. I'm going to use a fictional example, but Twin Peaks, the original run with Laura Palmer, she is absolutely indicative of that trope. And we see it again, like when Natalie Holloway disappeared, the fact that her disappearance got more coverage than, say, a comparable disappearance by a Black or Indigenous or Latinx person it's an indication of which stories get greater preference and greater treatment than others. So the only thing I'll slightly push back on the difference between men and women is that some women are lacking in compassion and some men are exceedingly compassionate. And certainly like one of my influences while working on both my features and books is someone named Robert Kolker who wrote Lost Girls about the victims of a still unsolved spate of serial murders in Long Island and his new book, Hidden Valley Road, which isn't so much a true crime book, but it is about a family where half the kids had schizophrenia and some of them did end up committing heinous crimes. And he was really looking into how they came to be and what would cause them to act this way with the mental illness that they had and how it sort of manifested a little bit differently in each sibling. And it was a huge family. Yeah, it was like 12 kids. Right. Yeah, this was a big book, what, two years ago or a year ago? No, I think it, it only just came out in April, but time is, of course, really elastic right now because of right. the pandemic. But it was an Oprah pick. Yes. And deservedly so. Mm -hmm. But I do think, to all of your point, is that what I'm most interested in in the true crime space are stories that get outside of traditional law and order narratives or 
following a whodunit. Those are all interesting and can be really well done. But I do find myself gravitating more towards stories about how crime intersects with culture or crime intersects with larger systemic issues or ideology or just pick your hot button topic, but even the ones that aren't so hot button that should be. Crime is a really generous space for telling stories. And I think that if we broaden what we think of as true crime, that means we'll be a lot more receptive to all sorts of storytelling. And I think that's a good thing. What are you working on now? What's the most exciting thing, especially during all this COVID crazy, that you wake up in the morning and go, ooh, I get to do this today? What's giving you that bump every morning? Well, the moment with the anthology only out in a few days' time, I know that by the time we finish taping and it airs, it'll be a few days' grace. So that's taking up all my time. And then I am waiting for edits on my next book. Can you give us a preview of what that's about? So the way I've been describing it is it is about the time when William F. Buckley, the founder of National Review and a major architect of the American conservative movement, helped advocate for a man on death row and helped get him out. And it turned out to be one of the greatest mistakes he ever made. Wow. Wow. That's intriguing. What's the working title? The title it's sold under is The Convict and the Conservative. We'll see if that holds. Wow. Wow. Okay, well, we're not going to keep you from writing. Chop, chop, get back to work. (laughs) It has been a pleasure having you. Thank you so much. It's been so great. Everyone needs to go read your new book, Unspeakable Acts, The True Tales of Crime, Murder, Deceit, and Obsession. And also check out your website for some of your other titles. I'm going to go read The Real Lolita. That's going to be my vacation reading, not like I'm having a vacation, but nonetheless. I'm going to live it. You're going to live it? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for joining us. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much, all of you. Thank you. 